If you're enjoying Bradbury 100, please search for my YouTube channel, Bradbury 101, where I review Ray's books and films. And why not check out my other podcast, Science Fiction 101, where we explore science fiction from all angles. Find Science Fiction 101 wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the life and work of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of bradburymedia.co.uk. Hello and welcome to Bradbury 100. What you're about to hear is the audio of a live video version of Bradbury 100, which I did for Ray's birthday, the 22nd of August 2023. So occasionally you may hear me referring to visual things that you can't see because you're just listening to audio. But if you want to see the video version, you'll find it on YouTube and you can get to it via my website, bradburymedia.co.uk. In any case, I hope you enjoy listening to this little celebration of the beast from 20,000 Fathoms and other things that happened in Ray's miraculous year of 1953, 70 years ago this year. Today, August the 22nd, 2023, is Ray Bradbury's 103rd birthday. So happy birthday, Ray, wherever you are. And I've been doing these live shows, well, every year since 2020. I don't know how long I'm going to carry on doing them. <laughs> I've, I struggle to do enough proper podcasts as it is, let alone doing these live shows as well. But I thought I'd give it a go this year. 2023 has been full of Bradbury anniversaries. And that's really what I want to talk to you about today in this live show. My main real topic is going to be The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, which is a film made in 1953, which had Ray's name attached to it. And I'd like to talk about the origin of that film, how it developed and then the influence of that film. But as I was doing the preparation for this, I realised that 1953 was something of a miracle year for Ray Bradbury. He did a whole load of stuff in that year. He would have been 32, 33 years old in that year. And he had a couple of books come out. He had a couple of films come out. And he embarked on the writing of the screenplay for Moby Dick, which became a real turning point in his career. Anyway, officially, this Bradbury 100 Live is about the beast from 20,000 Fathoms. So, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, a 1953 film. To be honest, not the greatest film ever made, but it was really the first film that exploited Bradbury's name in the publicity. Now, it's not based on a Bradbury book. It's very loosely based on one scene in a Bradbury short story, but that was enough for Bradbury's name to be attached to the film. And I'll tell you a little bit about how that came about later on. But first of all, the film itself. Somewhere I've got the Blu-ray. The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. 
Uh, I think it's great that they used, on this particular edition, they used the original film poster as uh, the artwork. Slightly modified, but very similar to the poster that I'm showing you now. Now, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms is a very low budget film. The two things to commend the film are the fact that it is based on a Bradbury idea. Uh, it's difficult to say it's based on a story because it isn't, but it's based on an idea which comes from a Bradbury story. The other thing to commend it is the really rather nice animation, which is done by Ray Harryhausen, who is a very good friend of Ray Bradbury. They've known each other since they were about 18 years old. They met in Los Angeles. Um, the two Rays, um, and, I, and I've done podcasts and web pages about this, so go and have a look at bradburymedia.co.uk and you'll see some of the things on there. But Ray Harryhausen and Ray Bradbury met in Los Angeles. They were both big fans of science fiction films and horror films. Bradbury wanted to write monsters. Harryhausen wanted to create monsters. And Harryhausen worked on Mighty Joe Young, and um, therefore worked with Willis O'Brien, who is the creator of King Kong, the, the creator of the creature King Kong and all the other animated elements of that famous film. Um, so the two Rays knew each other. They were very close. They both were interested in the same things. They hoped one day to work together. And Beast from 20,000 Fathoms is as close as they came to actually working together. Later on in their careers, it was obvious that they were interested in different types of storytelling. Harryhausen was more interested in uh, Greek myth and that kind of thing. Uh, Bradbury was much more interested in contemporary fantasy and science fiction and magic realism and all those kinds of things. So the types of story Bradbury enjoyed writing didn't turn out to be the types of things that Harryhausen wanted to make films about. But The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms was the perfect opportunity for the two to merge their talents, as it were. So this is the film. The poster screams, they couldn't believe their eyes, they couldn't escape the terror, and neither will you. Uh, and then this bit, which I think is one of the weirdest bits of wording I've ever seen on a film poster. The sea's master beast of the ages, raging up from the bottom of time. From the what? I didn't know time had a bottom. Well, anyway, there you go. That's the beast from 20,000 Fathoms. And down in the small print, suggested by the sensational Saturday Evening Post story by Ray Bradbury. They presumably thought that uh, Ray was well enough well-known enough, and the Saturday Evening Post was well-read enough that that would draw some people to this film. The film clearly is a, a sensationalist movie. It's not an art movie by any means. It is a sensationalist monster movie. And the fact that they were able to gain some prestige for the film by attaching Bradbury's name to it and attaching the Saturday Evening Post to it um, elevated it in the minds of the people who made the film, or at least the people who are promoting the film. And this, as I mentioned earlier, this film was released in 1953, which was Bradbury's miraculous year. Part of the reason it was a miraculous year is that another film came out that year which had Ray Bradbury 
attached to it. Now, there was no big promotional push in relation to his name on this one. It came from outer space, however, was created by Bradbury. He didn't get the screen credit. That goes to uh, Harry Essex. If you zoom in on the poster at the very bottom, it says screenplay by Harry Essex. The, this particular poster doesn't mention Bradbury by name. If you watch the film, however, you will see screenplay by Harry Essex, story by Ray Bradbury. So 1953, two films, one that had Ray's name on it, but he didn't really write the script. That's Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. And the second one, the one that he wrote the story for, which is It Came From Outer Space. If you had a career where those two things came out in the same year, you'd probably say, my, I'm quite busy this year. But Bradbury was even busier than that, because in the same year, he put out a short story collection, one of his best, The Golden Apples of the Sun. And it's got some of his greatest stories in there. A Sound of Thunder is in there. There's the one, uh, The Fruit at the Bottom of the Bowl, which is about the guy who commits a murder and realises that he's left his fingerprints everywhere. And he goes around the house manically trying to polish, polish all the fingerprints off everything that he's touched or everything that he might have touched. And it's got Hail and Farewell, which is a story about a boy who never grows up. He's stuck at 12 years old. He becomes a kind of a foster child of a family until they get a bit suspicious that he hasn't grown any older. And at that point, he has to move on and go and live with another family. And it's a very sad tale. Total fantasy, because obviously there's nobody like that in real life. But this is what Bradbury was able to do. He was able to take fantasy situations and make you, well, break your heart, basically. That's really what the best Bradbury stories do. And The Golden Apples of the Sun contains some of those best stories. Very specifically, it contains a number of his award-winning stories. He'd been winning awards and accolades since about the mid-1940s. And this is the book where he started collecting those together, but without any big um, fanfare or publicity. It was just, here's my latest short story collection. So that was a busy year for Ray, wasn't it? Two films and a book. Well, no, that's not enough because he also has this. Fahrenheit 451 comes out in 1953 as well. Widely regarded as his best book, probably the book that he will be remembered by. So like 50, 100 years from now, when most of his short story collections are beginning to drift into distant memory, this is possibly the book that is going to define his, uh, what do you call it, his sort of longevity. Um, and Ray thought that as well. And in fact, it's on his gravestone. His gravestone is very humble. It simply says, Ray Bradbury, author of Fahrenheit 451. And as I've said before, that's either a very humble thing to have on your gravestone or a very boastful thing, <laughs> depending on your interpretation of that choice of wording. So what a year, eh? One of your best short story collections, probably your best novel and two films. But even that's not enough for Ray Bradbury. 33 years old, at the peak of his powers, his writing gets, well, it gets attention from various critics. He meets John Huston, the filmmaker, uh, writer and director of The Maltese Falcon, 
among other things. Uh, he was a great fan of Houston and he dis decided that he wanted to meet him. So he had a meeting, he managed to uh, sneak up on him somewhere and give him some books. And then John Houston contacted him and said, would you like to come and write a script? In fact, what Houston said to him, to him is, have you ever read Moby Dick? And Bradbury says, no, I've never been able to finish the damn thing. And Houston says, well, I want you to come and write the script for me. And so in late 1953, Ray Bradbury sets off on a ship sailing across the Atlantic to Ireland, where uh, John Houston has a house, and they set to work writing the screenplay of Moby Dick. Ray finishes his draft in February of 1954. The film is shot, I think, in 54 and is released in 56. So technically speaking, uh, Moby Dick doesn't belong in the year 1953, but it's the year that Ray got dragged away from Los Angeles to go to Europe. The first time he'd been to Europe, the first time he'd left uh, North America and his first real commission for writing for movies. He'd, he'd written It Came From Outer Space, he'd written a few other things, but this was the first time that a major director had said, come and write a script for me. And all that happened in 1953. Now, if you look at the biographies of Bradbury, if you read uh, the Bradbury Chronicles by Sam Weller, and in particular, if you read Jonathan R. Eller's biographies of Bradbury, which start with Becoming Ray Bradbury and ends with Bradbury Beyond Apollo. Ella really makes a strong case that the Moby Dick experience is a, a kind of a, a dividing point in Ray's career. Before Moby Dick, Ray was a celebrated short story writer across many genres with a prolific output after the experience of Moby Dick, he starts writing a lot of plays. He starts writing a lot of poetry. His short story compositions drastically drop in quantity. And it's it really is a case of having a career of two halves. Now, a lot of people have dismissed virtually everything that Bradbury did after Moby Dick because they say, oh, all his great stuff was his early short stories, uh, Dark Carnival, all of that sort of stuff. Um, and later on, it's it's poetries and plays and stories set in Ireland, and none of them are as good as the early stuff. Now, there is some truth in that, but in that second half of the career, and Bradbury had an incredibly long career because he lived into his 90s, in that the second half of his career, you have Something Wicked This Way Comes, which is a pretty damn good book. Later on, in the 1980s, uh, he, he kind of remakes himself as a writer of quirky crime mystery stories with Death is a Lonely Business and uh, A Graveyard for Lunatics and Let's All Kill Constance. And so the late period of Bradbury's career, really when he was in his 60s and 70s, sees a, an enormous explosion of new writing, some of which is as good as the middle period. Maybe not as good as the very early stuff, but as good as his middle period. Anyway, 
Moby Dick is this pivotal time. 1953, I would say, is the peak year of Bradbury. Two books, two films, and off to write another major motion picture. But back to The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Let's go back and back and back to 1951. And this is where the story that became the film first appeared. And lo and behold, the story was called The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. This is the Saturday Evening Post. Beautiful piece of artwork there from James Bingham showing the key scene from the story. Um, basically, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms is about a couple of people on a lighthouse and it's a dark and stormy night and they go and switch on the foghorn on the lighthouse. Now, deep in the oceans, there is a stirring of a beast which hears this haunting, plaintive sound and is lured to the surface, thinking that it has found a mate. It's a lonely, if you like, last dinosaur on Earth, and it hears what it thinks is another of its kind calling to it. So off it goes in search of this sound. And when it arrives, it discovers it's just this stick in the ocean with uh, a light going around on the top. So it angrily destroys the lighthouse. And that's the scene that we see depicted in the magazine. Uh, here's a couple of quotes from the story. The monster was rearing up. I had a glimpse of its gigantic paws, fish skin glittering in webs between the finger-like projections clawing at the tower. The huge eye on the right side of its anguished head glittered before me like a cauldron into which I might drop, screaming. The tower shook. The foghorn cried. The monster cried. It seized the tower and gnashed at the glass, which shattered in upon us. So you get a sense of the scale of the beast and this sort of extreme close-up of uh, parts of the beast as seen by the lighthouse keeper. And then there's this rather beautiful scene from later in the story. And then I began to hear it. First a great vacuumed sucking of air, and then the lament, the bewilderment, the loneliness of the great monster folded over and upon us. The tower was gone, the light was gone, the thing that had called to it across a million years was gone, and the monster was opening its mouth and sending out great sounds, the sounds of a foghorn again and again. So the foghorn has attracted the beast in the first place because he thinks it's the sound being made by another of his kind. And then in his anguish at the end of the story, he too makes that sound, that foghorn sound. Uh, very, very sad story. How, how can you get so sad about a purely fantasy creation, uh, the last monster on Earth, the last dinosaur on Earth? That's what Bradbury can do. He's just so um, so powerful with the situations that he creates and the language that he uses to describe such things. Anyway, so that's the story from the Saturday Evening Post, 1951, and it was called The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, and hence the film is called The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Now, there was a big oops 
in the early stages of the making of The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. And the oops was when the producers basically stole Ray Bradbury's story and uh, didn't quite get away with it. Well, they probably didn't intend any harm, but they seem to have inadvertently stolen the story and then only later put things right by crediting Bradbury. So this is how the events unfolded. According to Bradbury, this is from an interview that he gave in 1981. He said, the producer Hal Chester called me and said, we're having some problems with this monster script that we're working on for uh, Ray Harryhausen to animate. And we wondered, maybe you could come over. We'll give you the script. You can go in the next room here and take an hour and read it. And Ray thought this was a bit odd because this isn't standard practice in Hollywood, but because he knew Harryhausen was attached to the film, he thought he'd be doing a favour to Harryhausen. So Bradbury says, yes, OK, I'll do that. And then he came out of the little room, having read the script, and he said, it's basically, it's, it's fine, but it's very similar to a story of mine called The Foghorn that was in the Saturday Evening Post in 1951. And the blood drains from the producer's face. He goes as white as a sheet uh, as he realises that this is where they got the story from. Now, it's not entirely clear whether the producers, as I say, were doing this deliberately, whether they'd seen the Saturday Evening Post and said, yeah, we want to do that in our movie, or whether that had sort of subconsciously influenced them and they'd forgotten about it. But either way, as soon as it was pointed out, they did the right thing and they offered Bradbury compensation for uh, use of his story. So this is what Bradbury says. The very next day, I got a telegram from the studio saying they wanted to buy the rights. And of course, I sold the rights immediately. So in many ways, the producers were probably quite happy knowing that they could attach Bradbury's name to the film. And as we saw in the poster earlier on, it says suggested by the Saturday Evening Post story. So that was able to give the, the film, which would otherwise just be a, a tiny little monster movie, was able to elevate it somewhat, or at least that's what they hoped. Now, Ray refers to the Foghorn there, and that's because by 1953, he had retitled the story The Foghorn, and it was just about to appear in his book, The Golden Apples of the Sun. So if you have a copy of that book. It's possibly the first story in there. It is in the classic version of the book. Some versions of The Golden Apples of the Sun that you pick up nowadays are actually called The Golden Apples of the Sun and Other Stories. And that is, it's all been shaken up. The stories are not in the right order and there's some other stories flown in from elsewhere. So um, modern versions of the book are not what they appear. But anyway, in the 1953 edition, the opening story is the Foghorn, the beast from 20,000 Fathoms, retitled. Beautiful line drawing accompanying it by Joe Mugnani, who illustrated every story in the book, just a single picture for each story, but really nice, um, simple, and yet complex images. So if you look at the image for the Foghorn there, notice that the beam of light coming from the lighthouse is actually just white space. 
<laughs> this is this is a clever thing that artists can do. They can use empty space as a shape. So you think you're seeing a, a beam of light. Actually, what you're seeing is just blank page just there. Now, The Golden Apples of the Sun is one of the books that Ray Bradbury gave to John Huston. John Huston read The Foghorn and from what he saw in The Foghorn, he was convinced that Bradbury would be a good bet for writing the script for Moby Dick. Because in The Foghorn, Ray writes about this creature under the sea, you know, from the deep, dark, deep, dark depths of the ocean. And he gives the creature um, a, a sense of um, th there's some emotion attached to it. We have empathy for the creature. And Houston thought that any writer who could write that story in that way could probably do a, a very good turn with Moby Dick. So you see, all of this ties together. Um, the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms is a bit of a tacky film from the 1950s, but it actually ties to this book of short stories, The Golden Apples of the Sun, and it ties to the whole Moby Dick experience. So we've got a lot to thank The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms for. Now on the various um, home media versions of The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, the, the, uh, this is the Blu-ray version. The DVD version before this also had the same thing. There is a um, sort of making of uh, featurette with Ray Harryhausen where he talks about it. Uh, about his work on the film, and he talks about the um, the roller coaster scene, the Coney Island scene, which is the other sort of big iconic moment in the Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms. Now that doesn't come from Bradbury at all, but hold that thought. We'll come back to that in a second. I just want to mention in passing that uh, Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms. I think was part of the, the tipping point of science fiction film of the 50s going from being fairly serious to being monstrous and all about monsters and nothing else and becoming a scare fest. So that's an unfortunate um, influence that The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms and some other films had. Another influence it had was on the creation of Godzilla, or as you might know him, Godzilla. Uh, the film Godzilla was made a year later than The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. It is a known fact that the makers of Godzilla were influenced by The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. It wasn't a rip-off. They weren't uh, trying to steal the idea. There are some things that the films have in common. They both involve a sort of dinosaur-like creature that comes up out of the ocean. But the stories are very different and the, the tone of each story is different and the motivations behind telling the story is different. Uh, but it is acknowledged that Gojira was inspired by the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. And if it hadn't, if Beast hadn't existed, maybe Gojira might have been something else other than a creature from the deep. Now, I mentioned that Coney Island scene and said that was nothing to do with Bradbury. But I think it influenced Bradbury because later on in his career, really quite late, when he was in his 60s, 
He wrote a book called Death is a Lonely Business. This is the UK hardcover, which, as you can see, has a canary in a cage uh, for some reason. It, that is in the plot somewhere, I think. I can't remember quite how that works out. The American book was a bit weirder in terms of cover design. This is the cover. And you can see it's got a kind of a roller coaster in the background and a whole set of eyeballs rolling around on the ground. Those are actually in the story. There is a scene that involves uh, a, a, play, a, a, a shop um, where a guy has got a tray full of glass eyes. So it, it, although that is one of the weirdest book covers you'll ever see, uh, it does actually connect to the story. But there's also that um, roller coaster on the front. And I'm I've got no proof of this, but I can't help thinking that Bradbury was influenced by Ray Harryhausen's Coney Island scene. If you read the very beginning of Death is a Lonely Business, yeah, the quote I'm going to put up is actually the second paragraph of the book. Those were the days when the Venice Pier, this is Venice, California, by the way, those were the days when the Venice Pier was falling apart and dying in the sea. And you could find there the bones of a vast dinosaur, the roller coaster, being covered by the shifting tides. At the end of one long canal, you could find old circus wagons that had been rolled and dumped, and in the cages at midnight, if you looked, things lived, fish and crayfish moving with the tide. And it was all the circuses of time somehow gone to doom and rusting away. Now, Ray is describing the Venice, California that he knew. He lived there in the 1950s and he's describing the decline of Venice. And apparently everything he's describing there really existed. Not quite in the form of a dinosaur, you know, but he's, he's using his poetic license there. But I can't help thinking in that scene there where he is connecting dinosaurs with roller coasters. I can't help but see the Coney Island scene from The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. So I figure there is probably some influence there, maybe conscious, maybe unconscious. Where there is a very, very definite influence is in another book from a similar time period, which is A Graveyard for Lunatics. And here's my copy of it. This is the UK paperback from I think 1991. Um, really very nice image of a sort of the gates of a Hollywood studio there, um, but also with gravestones outside. And that's really what the book is about. It's set in a film studio, which is right next to a graveyard. And again, inspired by uh, real places in Hollywood. The American first edition, the image that you see on the screen now, um, it's a bit more abstract. Uh, in the styling. But this book is Ray's second sort of mystery crime novel, um, the sequel to Death is a Lonely Business. So you've got this one comes out in, I think, about 85. And this one comes out in 1990. So this is the original. This is the sequel. And there's a third book in the series, which is Let's All Kill Constance, which came out, I think, in about 2000, 2002, something like that. Anyway, um, 
In A Graveyard for Lunatics, Ray writes about his time in Hollywood in the 1950s. It's a novel, so it's fiction, and the narrator of the novel is a novelist. I don't know if we ever find out his name. If we do, his name certainly is not Ray Bradbury, so it's clearly a fictional character. Another character in A Graveyard for Lunatics um, goes by the name of Roy Holdstrom, uh, but he is very clearly Ray Harryhausen. So in the book, in this book, you've got the two characters, uh, Ray, our Ray, and Roy, Roy Holdstrom, which is Harryhausen, and they have their adventures around Hollywood, including working on a film together. Roy Holdstrom, says the book, had built dinosaurs in his garage since he was 12. The dinosaurs chased his father around the yard on 8mm film and ate him up. Later, when Roy was 20, he moved his dinosaurs into small fly-by-night studios and began to make on-the-cheap Lost World films that made him famous. So Bradbury is describing the real Ray Harryhausen in much of the book, but obviously there are parts that are totally fictional. Here's another passage. Roy and I had been called in to blueprint and build beasts. They had hired Roy first because he was technically advanced. His pterodactyls truly flew across the primordial skies. His brontosaurs were mountains on their way to Mohammed. And then someone had read 20 or 30 of my weird tales, stories I'd been writing since I was 12 and selling to the pulp magazine since I was 21, and hired me to write up a drama for Roy's Beasts. So, although in real life, Ray and Ray didn't actually collaborate on The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, in this fictional retelling, they do collaborate. So, 1953 then was a real bumper year for Ray Bradbury. The two films that came out, the two books that came out, and him beginning work on the screenplay for Moby Dick, which, according to Ray's main biographer, was a turning point in his career. So this 1953 is Ray Bradbury's miraculous year, and really, I think, the, the pivot point between the early Bradbury and the later. So that was The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms at 70, plus a whole load of other stuff that connects to The Beast, thanks to the year 1953. Now, before I disappear today, I would just like to draw your attention to another little venture that I've been involved in, and that is the new Ray Bradbury Review, which is the official journal of the Ray Bradbury Centre, which is in Indianapolis. I'm the editor of the review, and for, to be honest, over a year now, I've been working on putting together our first online issue. Editing a journal takes a lot more time than you think, or it takes a lot more time than I think, uh, but we're very ready for launch. I haven't yet pressed the publish button, but uh, I can give you a sneak preview of 
the new Ray Bradbury review. And it's called issue number seven because there have been six previous issues published in print form over the years. The last print edition came out in 2019, I think. So that was four years ago. And obviously we had a pandemic in the meantime, which interrupted things. But we're now back in business with the review. It used to be that if you wanted a copy of the review, you had to pay for it because there were print editions published by uh, Kent State University Press. We're now online as an open access journal, which means everything there is free for everyone to view. If you head for the new Ray Bradbury review right this minute, you can't see it. But by the end of this week, I think it will be open for business. So that was the audio from the live Bradbury 100 that I did for Ray's 103rd birthday on the 22nd of August. I hope you enjoyed it. There's more where that came from. So keep an eye out for more episodes of Bradbury 100. Bye for now. If you enjoy Bradbury 100, please give me a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. A five-star review will help others to find the podcast. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Please subscribe to or follow the podcast using your podcast app. You can find us on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and all good podcast places. And don't forget to look for my Bradbury 101 series on YouTube and my other audio podcast, Science Fiction 101. For information on all of these and an endless supply of information about Ray Bradbury and his works, head to my website, bradburymedia.co.uk.